I hope you have your Bibles open to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. That's what we have been studying through, and that's what we will continue to study through this morning as we're going to be looking at verses 9 through 11. Having examined two specific areas uh, that the church had fallen into of areas of sin, Paul is going to now, in verses 9 through 11, he's going to pull back for just a moment. He's going to take a bigger picture look at what it fundamentally means to be and to live as a redeemed Christian. And so that's where we're going to be at today. So if you've got your Bibles, we're going to read 1 Corinthians 6, and we're going to read verses 9 through 11. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed and you were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Paul doesn't waste any time here. He opens this passage with two serious assertions that would no doubt spark controversy in our own current culture. The first assertion he makes is this. Not everyone is going to inherit the kingdom of God. That's very popular to believe that heaven is the next stage of human life by default. You die, and then you just go to a better place. Even those who concede that not everyone will go to heaven, they typically have an idea of hell as the exception to the rule. Only the worst of the worst sinners have a chance of ending up there. That attitude is optimistic, but it is foreign to the Bible. And Paul doesn't give us room to fall within that realm of thinking. The kingdom of God is real, but not everyone will inherit its blessings. That's the first controversial statement we're going to look at today. The second controversial assertion that Paul makes is tied to the first, and that is that not everyone is righteous. Not everyone is righteous. What will determine whether a person inherits the kingdom of God or not inherit the kingdom of God? The thing that determines that is whether or not they are righteous. Paul is boldly proclaiming here that they, there are righteous people in the world and there are unrighteous people in the world. Man is not universally good. And the blessings of God do not flow to every human being in the same ways. That offends people. That makes them nervous. And very well it should. Now, so as not to distract you for the remainder of the sermon as you sit there thinking, is Pastor Nick saying that there are good people and bad people? Let me clarify up front. The people that who could be considered righteous are not so because of anything that they themselves have done or because of what they have not done. Those who are righteous are righteous because of what Jesus has done in them. We're going to circle back around to that in a while and flesh it out even more. But first, we're going to begin by establishing how radically Paul's viewpoint differs from the common thinking that fills the world. Not only the world that he lives in, but the world that we live in today. Insisting that there are righteous people and unrighteous people in the world is controversial in our day and age because 
the general sentiment accepted in our culture is that there are not righteous and then unrighteous people. There are only people. They are all equal and they are all righteous in their own way. That is the commonly held belief in our culture today. Jean-Jacques Rousseau was a philosopher, ironically, from Geneva, Switzerland, and one of the most influential thinkers of the 18th century. His writings, along with the ideas of John Locke and a handful of others, made a heavy impression on the American experiment of democratic government that would define this nation's culture. He sums up what has become almost the default public opinion of the nature and character of man when he says, man is naturally good and anything that is not natural has corrupted us from this natural state, end quote. This Enlightenment thinker sought to redefine the way that man should see himself. He argued that the human character is like a tabula rasa, a blank slate, that it is naturally pure and that it is only falling into sin when it is corrupted by external forces of temptation. His emotions are pure, his desires are pure. It is only when these outside foreign forces bring impurities into the heart of man that corruption happens, according to Rousseau. Now, doesn't that sound nice? Doesn't that sound charitable? If it were true, we would need to look at the whole world in a different way. But friends, this is not true. If that were true, if there weren't any unrighteous people then we'd have a totally different world that we would be living in today. The Christian who loves truth cannot buy into the idea that all people are righteous in their own way, no matter how popular that idea becomes, because in order for that statement to be true, righteousness would have to lose all of its meaning. If you want to be biblical, there's no way around it. You're going to have to stand with Paul the Apostle here thinking that everyone is righteous in their own way, is flat out wrong. All have sinned. So turn with me to Titus chapter 3. Titus is another letter written by the Apostle Paul. This is what we call a pastoral letter. It is a letter written to a fellow minister who is doing his best to be a faithful elder in a church. And so he's giving him instruction and guiding his leadership. And the truth is, as proclaimed in Titus 3 here, that our culture has got it backwards. We're not all righteous. We're all wretched. We're all wretched in our own ways, but we are all wretched. Titus 3, verse 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. This is the default nature of man, friends. And, and man will remain that way unless God steps in and does something radical to make us righteous. And how does he do that? Paul goes on to describe the process here in verses 4 through 7 of Titus 3. He says, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So that being justified by his grace, 
we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That word heirs should ring familiar in our ears as we've just been talking about who's going to inherit the kingdom of God, right? It is not those who are intrinsically righteous or prove that they are more righteous than their neighbors. It is those by the blood of Christ who have been made righteous, who have been given the Holy Spirit so that they too might love what is good and holy, that they might walk in accord with the word of God. So there are righteous people in the world and there are unrighteous people. And the only people who can be classified by, as righteous are those in whom the Spirit of God dwells. Those whose heart of stone has been exchanged for a heart of flesh, who can be compassionate to the things of goodness. Do you see what Paul said there in Titus 3.5? The sin that is standard in man is only overcome not when we become righteous, not by those who are born and inclined to righteousness, all the verbs that Paul uses here are in the passive. We are made righteous by God. He pours out His mercy on us richly through Jesus Christ. We are justified by Him, not by ourselves. These are the keys to God's kingdom. The kingdom that Paul speaks of here is a righteous place where the righteous God dwells. To inherit the kingdom of God is something altogether better than simply to go to heaven when you die. In order to qualify for an inheritance, you've got to be a part of the family, right? You've got to be a true son. You've got to be a true daughter to the, to the father who, who, who owns the, the kingdom, who has every right and authority over the kingdom. So in order to qualify for an inheritance, you must become a part of that family. For that to happen, God has taken wretched sinners and He has made them something totally different than what they were. He has washed them clean. He has made them spiritually alive. He has put His own righteousness into them. And in doing so, He has joined them to Himself, adopting them as His own and allowing them to bear His very name. And so this inherited kingdom of God has two expressions. It has an eschatological expression, a future expression, which we all look forward to. And as we enjoy the, the table that the Lord sets for us in uh, the hour to come, it should not only rejoice in what Christ did on the cross, but it also should remind us of His promise that He is returning to bring His people back to be with Him again. So there is a kingdom that will be expressed in its fullness in the future, where we will leave behind this sinful nature, this brokenness of mankind, and we will be joined to Him. We will walk with Him in a physical way, with eternal bodies that are no longer subject to sickness or weakness. That is the future expression of this, this kingdom of God. But there's also a present expression of the kingdom of God, and we're experiencing it right now. We experience it when we gather around this table. When we come to be in the presence of a God who has said, you are mine, and you are now currently a part of the kingdom over which I rule. We're not enemies to that kingdom anymore. He has ushered us in. And so that while we are in a foreign land, and while we don't belong in this world that we live in anymore, Christians are headed back to their home. But they're citizens already, citizens of the kingdom of God. So there's a future expression of this kingdom and there is a present and realized expression of that kingdom. The unrighteous are those who lack faith in Jesus. And since Jesus is the only way that we can enter into the family of God, those who don't trust Jesus have no part in the inheritance of his blessed kingdom. 
So Paul's clarifying. He's peeling back the layers of the misunderstanding that these Corinthians have held to. He has to do that because these Corinthians have made a very dangerous mistake in the way that they view ongoing sin in the life of a professing believer. So Paul says, do you not know? In other words, he's, he's speaking to them of something that should be clear to them by now. This is not a new teaching that he is bringing to this, this young church that hasn't run into it yet. No, they have been taught these things. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God, and they should know that. They're acting like they don't know that. Then he says, do not be deceived. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God, and if we let the world tell us what we should think about the kingdom of God and about righteousness and unrighteousness, then we put ourselves in a vulnerable position. Then we might allow our minds to be deceived into believing in such a way that we might behave like something we're not. We might behave like a lost person when in reality, God has redeemed us to be near to Him. And so these Corinthians are either choosing to ignore the truth or they're exchanging it for a lie. Either one of those things will disqualify you from the kingdom of heaven. So this is a very serious topic. This is something that Paul is not going to skirt around the issue. He's going to meet it head on. He asks if they understand the mistake that they're making. And then he gives them a stark clarification. If you live in such a way that your life is identified by sins sins that have no place in the life of a believer, then you have no reason to think that you're going to inherit the kingdom of God when your time here on earth is done. And friends, identity is a very critical subject in this letter, isn't it? Who we are and what we do as an expression of who we are is very, very key to what Paul has to share with these Corinthians. He wrote this letter because the Gentile, largely Gentile believers in Corinth were continuing to live like godless Gentiles. Even though they had been re redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ and brought out of that culture, out of that way of living, they kept walking in the same patterns and habits that they had before they encountered Christ. This is completely inconsistent. And so Paul provides here a list of sins that have such an impact on those who practice them that they begin to lay claim to the person who's practicing them's very identity. Look at the words. Paul doesn't just list sins, does he? These sins are described as titles for those who do those sins, not as abstract actions, neither sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, those who practice homosexuality, thieves. He's talking about personhood here, right? The greedy, drunkards, revilers, swindlers. He's not just talking about the sin itself. He's talking about the one who practices it. These are people who are defined by their law-breaking behavior. They are so identified by what they do that that sinful action takes on a representative function in their life. You may have seen within the church a modern tendency to separate the sin from the sinner. We hear that a lot, don't we? You know, we are to love the sin. I'm sorry, love the sinner... <laughs> That's the first heretical thing I'll say today. <laughs> we are to love the sinner and hate the sin. You've heard that before, right? Sin is bad. People sin. 
But Rousseau and others like him say that man is basically good. So maybe we can hold on to both of those truths by dividing the person from the sin they have committed. Just love that sinner and hate the sin. And this is seldom questioned among evangelical Christianity. But I want to challenge you today that I think we should question that, that tendency to separate the sin from the sinner. The purpose of doing so has a noble cause. It's supposed to guard us from hating sinners, right? It's supposed to keep us from being proud legalists who think of ourselves as sinless and those sinners out there as wretched people that we should reject. That's the, that's the idea behind love the sinner and hate the sin. So there's a good cause for it, a good reason for it. We're told to love our neighbor, even if our neighbor's sinful. We're told to love our enemy, the one who wants to do us harm. We're supposed to love them, right? So, so the impetus behind that way of thinking is probably noble. But the phrase itself, love the sinner, hate the sin, cannot actually be found in Scripture, nor can it be entirely supported in Scripture. And this idea of separating the sin from the sinner ignores the very dangerous reality that sin affects who you are. Sin causes a change in us. We are to hate sin because of what it does to us. God himself hates sin, does he not? Think about that passage in Proverbs chapter 6. Six things that the Lord despises. Seven things that he hates, right? And then he goes on to list several sinful activities that plague the people of Israel and would draw them away from this right relationship that he has called them into by covenant. God hates sin. There are even times when he expresses his hate towards, towards sin in the Psalms by saying that he hates a sinner who does a wicked thing that would, that would be against his kingdom. To love sin is itself a sin. If you read in Romans chapter 1, it talks about the, basically the unraveling of humanity. It talks about how people become to, they come to love their sin rather than the creator. They love the created thing and the thing that they idolize. So why should we not be so quick to separate the sin from the sinner? Because the heart is exceedingly wicked and deceitful. It is not the sin outside that corrupts the heart. This was almost all of Rousseau's argument. He says that we're basically good. It's just this bad world that we live in that's so bad. It makes us crooked. But the scripture tells us something a lot more personal. It tells us that our heart, our heart has a wickedness in it a wickedness that only God can make right. Sin springs forth from us. It is not a virus that infects us from the outside. That's not to say that environmental circumstances don't have the potential to stir up wickedness that is already inside of us. They do. We've got to be careful about who we associate with. We've got to be careful about how much time we spend exposing ourselves to wicked things that are tempting to us. But if in our minds... The enemy is always out there and never in here. We're going to be chasing the wrong adversary. If you conquer every temptation outside of you, but you never face the temptation that originates in your own broken heart, then you will never be saved. And if sin is out there instead of in here, are you ever going to be motivated to repent or will you be motivated instead to complain? To lament, oh, this terrible world that I live in. You see the difference there? If sin is always out there, then what else are we going to do? We're going to grumble about it. We're going to point our finger at it. 
we're also going to eventually feel proud about the fact that we're not out there. We're in here. No, friends. We've got to realize the fact that sin comes from within. So verse 9 through 10 gives us a vibrant evidence of how sin is not just something outside the sinner. It is something within, something that affects the identity of the man, something that springs forth from one who is not submitted to Christ. These sins are frequently tied to a person's identity and their standing in the community. So let's take a moment and look at a few on this list. I'm not going to go down this list and look at every one of these sins that's listed. But I want to look at a few of them so that we might observe the way that these sins have the power to impact one's identity. So he says, do not be deceived. The sexually immoral will not inherit the kingdom of God. Sexual immorality is a broad category that many other specific sins could be filed under, even some sins that will appear later on in the list. Most basically, this is speaking about people who decide that God's definition of good and moral sexual conduct just not it's not acceptable to them they have gone gone beyond what God has defined as good and they have they have broadened the borders they have included more things they are more accepting than God is to redefine what is sexually moral is to twist the gift that God has given to us to use it in a way that it was never intended to be used for by doing so they profane the gift they ruin the good thing that God has given Friends, to practice sexual immorality, and that, that means premarital sex. That means pornography. That means fantasizing about somebody else's bride or husband. There's a, a wide array, array of ways that this sort of sexual immorality can be practiced. But to practice this without remorse or without repentance is an unrighteous behavior that leads to a person being consumed by that unrighteous behavior. We're going to learn a little bit later on as well in Corinthians that when we sin in a sexually immoral way, we're not just breaking a law. We're offending our own body. We're sinning against the vessel that God has given to us. As a Christian, this body is to be holy because the Holy Spirit now dwells inside of it. This past week, I don't know if you noticed it, um, but we had somebody tag the church out in the parking lot. And whenever somebody does something to my house, it aggravates me, you know, if somebody chucks trash on my front porch or steals my mail or something, I get upset about it. But I am a lot more upset when somebody does something to God's physical building here that we meet in as a church. And that's because this is the place where we come to worship in a gathered way. This is to be like a holy place. Now, it's not the church properly. We are the church. We are the ones where the Holy Spirit dwells. But I have a special reverence for this building because it is used by God in powerful ways in my life and I hope in yours. How much more so should that apply to our physical bodies, friends? That if the Spirit dwells in you, that there is no way that you should be dragging your body into any kind of sexually immoral behavior because in doing so, you're defiling the temple of God. So sexual immorality gets at our identity. It makes us Ravenous, it makes us obsessed with the things that we desire, and that desire is not always rooted in anything good. He goes on to call out idolaters. How does what we desire most affect our identity? In just a few hours, you're going to see some people, probably on TV, rather large men, in the middle of wintertime with no shirts on, with paint covering their bodies because they want to be associated 
with the team that they hope is going to win the championship. And, and when that team wins that championship, they're hoping that a, a, a little sliver of the glory those professional athletes feel, that they'll get to feel that too. See, our, our idolatry of things, when we love things besides God in a worshipful way, we tend to want to be identified with those things. It affects how we want others to see us. We want people to see us in the same light as that thing that we worship. And so idolatry is a sin of personhood, of identity. Adulterers, those who practice sexual immorality in violation of their marriage covenant, they're breaking their very identity. What is marriage? It is when a man leaves his mother and father and he clings to his wife and the two become one flesh. One flesh. So when a man or woman commits adultery, when they seek sexual gratification outside of the marriage covenant, then they are breaking that vow of personhood. They're saying, I am not one with my wife. I want to be one with whoever I want to be one with. It is a disgrace to the commands of God and the order that he has brought to us for our own good. And it breaks our identity because so often that kind of sin will lead to the dissolve of a marriage. It doesn't always have to, but so often it can damage a marriage beyond what people are willing to work at to see repair. How about men who practice homosexuality? Now, in the Greek text here, there are two words described. And sometimes, depending on your translation, it might be separated into two categories. Those two words, I'm not going to get into the details of it because this is a family service, but it's talking about passive and active forms of engaging in homosexual behavior. Now, it amazes me, the exhaustive amount of work that has been expended by liberal commentators trying to make these two words say anything other than what we should plainly take them to mean. Some are so bold as to suggest that Paul isn't condemning same-sex intercourse at all here, that he's actually condemning the kind of immorality that was already mentioned in the, the list, promis promiscuous homosexual relationships. That's the new argument out there today, that as long as you're monogamous and committed, in a same-sex relationship, that it must be pleasing to God. But that is to ignore the very words that God gives to us in his revelation. This is talking about homosexuality. God is not okay with those kinds of relationships. And neither should we be. Why has our society tried so hard to erase God's command against this particular sin? Because this sin has a pervasive effect on one's identity. People become so wrapped up in this sin that they have forged a sub-community, a sub-society that is flavored by that sin. And so to let go of that sin is in some ways to let go of everything that you think that you are if you're a part of that community. It is more than sexual preference as it is so often casually stated. It has to do with your culture, with your mindset, with a whole heart attitude of rebellion against an order that you didn't get to set up in order that God has ordained for our blessing and for his good. Do you see how these different sins, friends, are tied to who we are if we allow them to dominate us? Paul is clearly against homosexuality here. His Jewish background makes that clear, just as he is against sexual immorality, just as he is against adultery. The declaration against homosexuality that Paul makes in Romans 1 makes it extremely clear. And the idea that these two terms mean other, anything other than those who practice same-sex relations is the exact kind of deception that Paul warns the Corinthians against in verse 9. 
Do not be deceived. One last uh, look at this list. Let's think about drunkards here. How does almost every AA meeting start off when you get in the circle and you start talking? It usually starts off with the Lord's Prayer. I don't know if they still do that. It used to. But when people go around the circle and they begin to share what's going on in their lives, they say, hi, I'm Bob, and I'm a recovering alcoholic. Now, don't get me wrong. There have been tremendous good things done through Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm grateful for the better relationship that I have with my own father who struggled with alcoholism so much of my life. He, he was able to get away from alcohol for a big chunk of his life because, in part, because of the things that were taught to him there. But think about that for a minute. That is the prescribed way you, you greet one another in Alcoholics Anonymous. My name is Bob, and I am an alcoholic. Or, my name is Bob, and I am a recovering alcoholic. Right there, your very name is attached to an identity. And it's not that that struggle isn't a part of who you are, but is it who you are? Is it your true identity? Is it worthy of the prime position of the description of yourself? Or is it better to say, my name is Nick Neves, and I am a redeemed sinner who has been bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. I have been made new by the work of my Savior, and I stand in his strength. You see the difference in the way that you think about your identity and your personhood from a secular perspective versus a biblical perspective. And I assure you, friends, as we get ready to take the Lord's table, you know, we have introduced a, a new element to this. We used to use only grape juice, and we thought we were being uh, considerate and loving and just offering grape juice uh, with our communion because we didn't want to tempt anyone who may be struggling with alcoholism. But this passage of Scripture really influenced the way we thought about these things. The early church pretty clearly used wine, alcoholic wine. And I've heard the argument several times that even a little tiny drink of wine puts you right back where you were before. And that's not a biblical idea. That is an idea that has been drummed into us by a culture that tries to reorganize our identity around secular concepts and philosophies. But friends, when you are in Christ, you are in Christ. And a drink of nothing is going to take you away from that. There is power and victory over alcoholism. And that victory can be expressed amongst the people here in this church. We hope that as you take the elements, consider that. Now, we are still offering juice for those who feel they need to take that. But we really encourage you to think about the victory that God has given to you over alcoholism or can give to you over alcoholism by his very blood and the bitter shedding of that blood that has washed you from your sin and made you new. So Paul's challenge here is to carry on in the old way of life is to identify with what you, or to, to not, I just got that all backwards. Let me say it over again. Let's start from the beginning. To carry on in the old way of life is to deny what you have become. It is to make no sense of the persistent, it, it makes no sense to persist in this activity. God wants us to walk in newness of life. And for these Corinthians to continue to, to crawl back into the patterns that used to define them is not only a disgrace to the God who saved them, it is a shame because it is a hurt to them when God has freed them from that slavery, from that addiction, from that way of living. This list that I just hinted at and talked about, touched on, is not necessarily the worst of, of the worst sins. 
all sin kills. Not all sin is punished equally, but all sin is worthy of expulsion from the kingdom of heaven. But this list is not like the top ones, the worst ones. This list is not exhaustive either. There are other things that can be done by a believer that would, if they're done habitually and without repentance, would indicate that's not a person who has the Spirit of God. If the sin that you struggle with is not on this list, doesn't mean that you don't have to concern yourself with being identified with Jesus instead of that sin. He could have very well mentioned pride or a lack of love for your neighbor or any other number of sinful ways of life that do not coincide with the the nature and characteristic of God. In fact, consider how common many of the sins that are on this list actually are. Some are so common that people who commit them might be tempted to write them off as not being serious at all or dangerous in nature. But Paul refuses to let the Corinthians continue thinking that they can be identified with these kinds of behaviors, ongoing, God-dishonoring character sins, and still expect to partake in the blessings of God's eternal kingdom. If that is who you are, if you are identified with your sin like that, then God has not called you out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light yet. It is a sobering and a humbling statement. And one of the things that we should come to love about Paul's writings is his tendency to make us face the harsh reality of sin and its dire consequences, but then in the very same breath to make us look beyond those consequences so that we might see the fact that in Jesus Christ there is our one and only solution to those sins. If you don't read the apostles' thoughts through to the end, you might come out spiritually crushed. You may read this list of sins and think to yourself, sometimes I take my drinking too far. I don't always tell the truth. I struggle with having immoral thoughts. Does that mean that my salvation is disqualified? Does that mean that God will have no part of me? But Paul will not let his audience thrash hopelessly about in a sea of uncertainty. Instead, he shares the wonderful hope of the gospel. And such were some of you. I don't know if verb tense was ever so important as it is here in these verses. Such were, past tense, some of you. Paul doesn't say, and some of you are alcoholics. And some of you are dishonest liars. And some of you would be classified as sexually immoral people. He doesn't describe them that way. Instead, Paul describes the Corinthians in such a way that they might remember the transformational power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Such were some of you. But a transformation has happened in your life that means you can no longer identify with that sin that used to own you. You have been set free from it. You cannot be what you were. But then something happened to these people. They used to be sinners. They used to be those enslaved by sin. But something happened to them. Something that they couldn't bring about on their own. Something that required a power and a commitment to righteousness that was far greater than they could muster. Paul mentions three things here. Take note of each of them as it is described in a way that indicates that the recipient was passive in gaining it. They didn't do it themselves. It was done to them. Watch this. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified. Each one of those, a passive thing. They couldn't do it themselves. God had to do it for them. You were a sinner, 
but you were washed by the blood of Jesus Christ. Hebrews 10, 19 through 20. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us now draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Do you see how the blood of Christ has the power to wash away those sins that used to held us in filth? You were a sinner, but then you were sanctified by his redeeming power. Hebrews 10 says in verses 11 through 14, and every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. To be sanctified means to be made holy. So prior to Christ, you were like every other person in the world. You were not holy. You were not righteous. But God, having washed you by his blood, he has brought a holiness into your life and he has set you apart for his good pleasure and use. You were a sinner, but you've been justified when Christ paid the full penalty of your sin. Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. The word propitiation means that he is a, a legal payment, a substitute for you. He goes and offers his body and suffers on your behalf. He becomes shame and sin and brokenness so that you won't have to be seen like that by God anymore. He takes the penalty of your sin upon himself, physically suffers in your place, and releases you from your debt. And how are these three beautiful changes brought about in the lives of these Corinthian believers? They were brought about in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the power of his Holy Spirit. Of all mankind, only Jesus Christ could rightfully be described as just. He exhibited perfect compliance and faithfulness to the laws of God. And so only Jesus Christ had the power to justify sinners like us. This is done in the name of Jesus Christ. You might want to think again about this representative nature of our behavior. We are saved not just to benefit ourselves, but to be a glory to God in our holy behavior. We're not saved to make God look like he's incapable of changing those who he calls. When a believer says, I, I trust Christ, and then walks again and again in unrepentant sin, what kind of a message is he sending to the world? He's either sending to the world that God doesn't really care about sin, it's cool with him, or he's sending the message that God doesn't have the power to overcome that sin. So as the name of Jesus Christ is employed on our behalf, the full use of the title is official in nature. It says the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And in some ways, it's almost like a signature, right? Like a seal. This language points to the official seal of Christ upon your life. The name, the signature of Jesus is written on our hearts, indicating that we belong to him. And having paid for our sins by the shedding of his own blood, Jesus was pleased to see the third member of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, fulfill his own important and unique role in our salvation. The Spirit of God, in a powerful way, makes holy a life that was formerly defied and common, 
a life that was unfit for worshiping the triune God. Now that life is set apart so that it could come near to God as you are coming near today in worship to him. It's done by the spirit of our God. Salvation is not the work of Jesus alone. It is the work of the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit working together to fulfill God's will to make us right and a people for his own name. Both indicate that the transformation begins with God and not with us. This is not only a change of behavior, it is a change of character. It changes what we do now that, that we are different then from this changed heart should flow actions and behaviors that match the word of the Lord who has saved us. We can no longer be what we were before we encountered Christ because who we are is fundamentally changed. It is different. So the Apostle Paul is not like Rousseau claiming that there was never a problem in the first place, that they had been mistaken this whole time, that their sins were not really a big deal, that Truly in their hearts, they're holy and pure. They just need a better environment. He's not saying that. Paul will not play the flattery game here. He knows, and we know, that apart from Jesus, our sin condemns us. That it is a greater problem than we can solve on our own. But with Jesus, we should see the fruit of that changed heart coming out in our lives. Now granted, it comes imperfectly at times, right? We are striving for a perfection that we have not yet obtained. Though our sanctification is at the same time done in Christ, it is also progressive, meaning that he continues to prune out of our lives things which no longer belong there. Branches in our tree that don't bear the kinds of fruit that are holy fruit. Branches that used to bear rotten fruit like the world did. Those things are still being worked out of our lives slowly and surely. He might be doing that for you this morning as we read this passage of Scripture together. Paul shows the Corinthians how the Son of God has intervened in a radical way to make us what we ourselves could not become. And so having been made new, how can we return to what we were? And this argument, friends, is in many ways the crux of the whole letter to the, first, the, the Corinthian church, this first letter. Stop being what you were and start being what you are now in Christ Jesus. You might sit in that chair right there and feel defeated because in your heart you say, I know that's what I'm supposed to do, but I can't. But I want to challenge you today. You can't be powerless over sin and indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God at the same time. Those two things aren't congruent. They, don't, they can't be true at the same time. You can't be powerless over sin and indwelt by the all-powerful Holy Spirit of God. So either you are wrong and you actually can stop doing what you've done by God's power, or you are right, but you are not yet saved. If that second thing applies to you, if you're not yet saved, then you can be. Today can be the day of salvation for you. Realize for the first time today that you have no power to overcome that which rules you, that you have only the hope that Christ can come into your life and redeem what you could not redeem yourself. Let today be the day of salvation. Repent and believe in the gospel. And trust that this God who is transforming the Corinthians can transform your heart as well.